At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. Hi there, this is Dennis O'Hare, and before we begin this edition of The Political Breakfast, just a quick reminder. WABE's Spring Fund Drive has ended, and maybe you meant to make a donation but just didn't get around to it. Well, there is still time to do that, to support Political Breakfast, of course, but also all of the other programs and podcasts that WABE offers our community. Programs and podcasts you depend on in difficult moments like these, and we depend on you. In fact, 84% of WABE's funding comes from the Atlanta area community. And that means all of us. It means you. So if you can, please give what works for you at wabe.org donate, and thank you. When it comes to your health, there's a saying you might have heard, know your numbers. Well, Georgia's COVID-19 numbers have been the subject of a lot of scrutiny lately. Meanwhile, some new polling numbers, if they're right, forecast a real fight up and down the state ballot in November. While the people who run elections here worry about how to safely handle the numbers of voters who show up in person. We thank you for showing up for the political breakfast. Welcome. I'm Dennis O'Hare, joined again by Republican strategist Brian Robinson and Democratic strategist Theron Johnson. Hey, guys. Hope you and your families are well. Thanks, Dennis. You too. Everyone's doing well. Thank you. The number of COVID-19 hospitalizations in Georgia has dropped lately, and that's especially good news now that the state is reopening. And some public health officials, though, expect the number of cases to go back up. But Theron, even Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms said in cable news interviews this week that the reopening, and these are her words, it's not as bad as I thought it would be. Well, to also give full context to her comments, what she also said over a month ago was she hoped that she's wrong, meaning that all this sort of pushback that she gave to the governor's decision, her concerns that she expressed, well, I think many Georgians, particularly in the Atlanta metro area, agree with her. She said she hoped that she would be wrong. So fast forward, here we are now, and what she's saying is, is that it looks like it's going well so far. And so I do think that the mayor does understand that the disagreement between her and the governor and sort of his phased approach put her in the spotlight nationally to express many of the concerns that I think were concerns of the majority of people who live in the Atlanta metro area. As we move forward, I think the mayor is going to continue to pay attention to the data that she's receiving And hopefully we can get some more consistent data from the state. But look, at the end of the day, I think that the mayor and other leaders that are mayors and county officials are wanting to work in concert with the governor and his plan. But I do think you're going to see the mayor take a very cautiously optimistic approach to this phase process. But I just don't want us to misconstrue her comments as sort of her conceding that she was wrong. No one is saying she was wrong in what she expressed. What she's saying is, is that she's following the data just like the governor and looks like it's going well so far. And Brian, we're gonna get to the data in just a moment, but even as the mayor is saying the reopening has gone better than she expected so far, we're seeing a new hotspot in East Georgia Hancock County, near Lake Oconee, between Covington and Augusta. And as we speak, it ranks fourth in the number of cases per capita, and this has happened since the reopening. The thing about the per capita rate is, with a small county, it, the numbers look really big when the raw numbers 
really aren't so much. But you know, Hancock County is the poorest county in the state. It's very isolated, even though it's not too terribly far from I-20. It's right in the middle between Augusta and Atlanta. And obviously, probably a lot of healthcare challenges there, probably not a lot of access to healthcare infrastructure, but the coverage that we've seen of it shows that in that community, there also has been a lack of social distancing and taking those precautions that are necessary. And that's not to condemn them. It is to say, let's learn from this. Let's understand that even a place that's very isolated, that is not highly populated, can still become a place where there's significant spread. And if they can happen there, it can certainly happen in the highly densely populated areas of Metro Atlanta. We can't let our guard down, even though the numbers are on the right trajectory, even though the hospitalizations haven't been as bad as we had feared, even though the rhetoric nationally attacking Georgia, and I think Mayor Biden's got lassoed into that, hasn't come to be what people were expecting. Even with that, we still must be careful. We want to maintain these positive trend lines that we're seeing because we are seeing our economy come back to life to some degree, and that's what we all want. But Brian, isn't part of what you were citing for Hancock County part of the difficulty because it was kind of encapsulated in a Washington Post story where the reporter went to Avalon in the northern suburbs, and one person said, you know, I'm getting back to normal, I'm going out, I'm not worried because of where the demographics are with the cases. I mean, so much for we're all in this together. I, I, that, I don't think that's fair, Dennis. I do think that that is a pragmatic, rational response. I saw other stories this week of people who travel a lot for business. And they've continued to get on planes, continued to stay in hotels, places that we were scared to go over the last couple of months. And what some of those business travelers were saying is, I'm still going to go places, I'm still going to earn a living, but I'm only going to go to cities and metro areas where there are a limited number of cases. I'm not going to be going into cities that are hot spots. So I do think that people are looking at that data, seeing where the problems are, and then taking calculated risk about where they go. But as far as being an all in it together, look, sitting in your house in a city, in a place where there's zero cases, makes no sense so we can all be in it together, but all be miserable together. Look, if there's anybody out there who has the ability to go to work and earn a living and pay taxes, and by God, we need them paying taxes right now, we are facing a terrible deficit, then all the better. That's a better way to be all in this together is to be making sure you can pay your mortgage, making sure you're paying sales taxes and income tax, and keeping these small businesses going. That is being all in it together. I think, Dennis, you are on to something with your second question to Brian, and it's something that we've talked about on this podcast, and that is that this coronavirus has affected black people and brown people and particularly poor people. What Brian just gave our listeners describing Hancock County is exactly sort of a front page display of health disparities that we must address in Georgia. I mean, I'm from Athens, Georgia. Clark County is literally less than an hour drive from Hancock County. This is the place in Sparta, Georgia, where I think the heat of the night was filmed. And so this is a rural area that has the highest number of African Americans, but it also is the poorest county in the state. Now, where I'm going with this is not just blaming the governor, but I think what coronavirus did for us, Dennis, it highlighted issues that have sort of not been at the forefront of prioritization in this state for a very long time. And so now moving forward, because as I said before, I do want to a phased approach to reopening the economy. You know, I traveled to Toombs County, Georgia, Vidalia, Georgia this week. And when speaking to the folks down there, they basically told me that they had roughly about 40 cases. They only had a few deaths. About 20 of those people were hospitalized. But just like Hancock County, I was very happy to talk to the Chamber of Commerce president in Toombs County. And to Brian's point, they said that they still had to exercise 
social distancing, even though they're a county that's spread out, that if you do not wear your mask, if you do not wash your hands and wear gloves and still practice the social distancing, we can have another Hancock County issue on our hands. And so now the governor in the state has got to focus on these rural counties and these areas in Georgia, but for so long that Brian and I have talked about that are in need of health care. There's clear disparities there with people who have pre-existing conditions. And so now I think we've got to really make sure that we have the best path forward, not to just reopen the economy, because again, we all want to do that, but we want to make sure that we keep people healthy and safe. Let's shift then to the questions about data, which you both said are so important in making these decisions. There's intensifying scrutiny of these statistics reported on the website of the State Department of Public Health, and the latest controversy came when DPH confirmed that its listing of the total number of tests, which are ramping up, includes both antibody and viral tests. Now, those are two different things. Antibody tests tell you about past infections. The viral tests are the ones that tell you whether you are currently infected. And if you put those two together, you can get an overinflated testing number, and that in turn makes it look like the level of disease relative to testing is dropping more dramatically than it really is. Georgia State University clinical associate professor Dr. Harry Hyman said, when you mix those numbers, you're putting apples and oranges together and calling them oranges. Brian, this is just the latest question about DPH statistics. Doesn't this make it difficult for businesses and individuals to make decisions or to have any trust in the data? I do think that we're gonna need to see a few weeks of not having these problems. Obviously, it has become an issue. But look, we started out this process back in what, March? Is that when it was? I completely lost track of time. March. I, mean, I, just, yeah. I just live in this bizarre bubble where nothing ever changes. But we were at that time, you know, working in a coal mine without lights. I mean, we had no idea what we were doing. And it, I mean, not just Georgia, but everybody in the world. We've come a long way since then. And look, let me tell you a little bit about my history and putting numbers on websites in state government. You know, people point to the governor's office and ask for them to apologize or admit there was a mistake. And to their credit, where there have been mistakes, they have said, yeah, this is a mistake. We're going to fix it. That's the proper response. And I think they've been able to move past these instances by just being honest about what happened. It's the smart way to go as opposed to getting defensive and just lashing out at people asking you the question. So I give them credit for that. But the governor's office is performing triage. The Department of Public Health is performing triage. They're in a hurricane of a pandemic. And even things that are super important may get overlooked because you're dealing with something that's even more super important at that moment. And that's where we've been for two months. So there's going to be mistakes. It's fair to judge Georgia on how other states are doing. But I dare say that the focus on Georgia has been much more stringent, not because we've been outliers in our response, that we've been behind. It's because the governor was the first one to reopen the state in a very public way. Now, other states soon followed suit. Other states were doing stuff at the, at the same time. but Kemp's actions were the ones that got national attention. And I think that that has made people be out there looking for us to be screwing this up in some way. I doubt highly that we're far behind other states in how we're responding. I just think there's more scrutiny because we became the storyline so much earlier on, fairly or unfairly. Aaron? Oh, oh, and here's my story. Yeah, I'm sorry. Here's my story. So in 2014, I was working in Governor Deal's office, and we were in the middle of a reelect, and our Democrat opponent was Jason Carter, and he was hitting this line about how many less Georgia students were getting the HOPE scholarship after the Deal reforms of 2012 that, by the way, saved the HOPE scholarship from bankruptcy and made sure it's alive even today. And I saw those numbers, and I was like, God, that doesn't sound right. I mean, and then I went to the uh, student finance site, which, you know, answers to the governor. And sure enough, 
the numbers that Crowder were citing were straight off the state's website. And so I called the CFO of the state and I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Figure this out. There's something that's not right. And kind of find out what they had posted on the website about current students getting hope did not include the students who are getting the Zell Miller scholarship under hope, which is the most lucrative scholarship under the hope umbrella. And it was just a bureaucratic snafu. Now, was that the governor's office fault? Well, I didn't monitor the websites every day of every state agency, so no, it never came across my table until it came across my table. And then we were able to act on it. So the governor's office is often going to be in a responsive pose and a defensive pose because a lot of that stuff's going up. They're not approving every single word that goes up, but they become the people who have to become the spokespeople who have to defend it or explain it. So let me be very clear two things one i know brian definitely had some some choice words for that cfo when he called that person uh, about the data he just can't say it on the podcast number two <laughs> is i want to be very clear there are still deaths that are happening in georgia i talked to DeKalb county ceo michael thurman this week i talked to fulton county chairman rob pitts i talked to folks in gwinnett county i talked to some folks in cobb county and for our listeners, these are your four top counties in the Atlanta metro sort of MSA area. There are still people who are dying in the state of Georgia. So I don't want our listeners, because I got criticized a little bit on Twitter for not pushing back on Brian. I think one guy kind of characterized it as sort of the Trump talking points around the COVID-19. And so we're not done yet. And I know Brian is not suggesting that we're done and we should just reopen. The second thing I want to say, Dennis, is that you've heard me for over two months now say what the governor said two months ago, and that is that he had extreme concerns around the inconsistency, the formatting, and the metrics of the data that he was receiving. And there are still concerns about the inconsistency and the formatting and the metrics that they're using to report the data. And it's still been a humongous problem with the site that all of us as citizens have to depend on. That is the problem where I think that the administration and the state has got to address because you've got local leaders like mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, who are talking to medical experts as well. And they're giving them different data than what the state is reporting on their website. And so while Brian is right, the governor can't necessarily control everything, but he is the governor. And that's why you saw him this week appoint one of his high level confidants, a person that's from his administration, to go over to the Department of Public Health to make sure that he does have those eyes and ears within that department. But I want to be very clear. The inconsistency of the data and not being able to display data that Georgians can read very plainly on the website is a problem. And we must fix it now because when this is all said and done, if the data does not match what he is attempting to do and it cannot be properly transparent to the citizens of Georgia, it's always going to be the skepticism and people are going to always question how really safe we are right now at a state where we're trying to enter into this next phase. Let me quickly pick up on the skepticism here, Brian, because this is the latest in a series of either mistakes or difficulties with the data. When the mistakes have all happened on the side of showing improving numbers, can you understand the skepticism about whether they're all mistakes? Sure, I understand the skepticism because the Georgia public has been exposed to a series, almost unrelenting stories about problems on the website. But I think we can all agree if you step back just a little bit, kind of get out of the day to day nitty gritty and the uh, errors that are going up on the website that they have acknowledged are errors, right? That we have seen a steady path of improvement in how this is being managed and orchestrated over the last two months. We started out with zero. Hopefully by the middle of June, we will have worked out these kinks. We'll have a system in place that works and gives people even better, even clearer data. We do know at the macro level that the numbers are, are going down, that things are getting better. So we do have reason for optimism, even if day to day, there are some mistakes that are on the website. On our WABE podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? The host of that podcast, Sam Whitehead, spoke with Commissioner of Public Health, Dr. Kathleen Toomey this week. And he asked her about public confidence 
in the website numbers, and he asked her about whether the Department of Public Health is solely responsible for its own numbers or what kind of input or whatever it might get from other places. And here's how that went. It, it gets me wondering who is making the call about what information that the Department of Public Health is displaying on this page. Is that being made within your agency? I, I, I Listen, I'm going to have to run. Um, I am actually can't answer this right now because I, um, I'm getting called by the governor's office. And um, I, I, mean, I really am going to have to go because I'm being yanked off. So well, me. sure. I just, I, 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 it is a pretty simple question, though. I mean, is that decision being made by your agency? I, I mean, it's, it's the decision of what goes up on the, on the website is, is being made in, in tandem with a lot of different, uh, with a lot of different agencies. Okay, now to be fair to Dr. Toomey, we should point out here that there was a very limited time window for that interview, and it's quite likely she probably did have to get off the phone and run. But Brian, on the other hand, to be fair to Sam, that is a pretty simple question. Do you guys control what you put out on your website? And she could answer probably in less time than the time she took to say why she had to get off the phone. I understood exactly what she was saying. Obviously, she was having to think through it a little bit. And this is something that is, is very normal. You, you can ask a question. You, The real answer, I mean, the straight answer comes to your head. And then you got to think six chess pieces down the road to figure out what are, the, what are the repercussions of me saying this. And you can see her going through that thought process. Look, what she ended up saying there was this is a deliberative process and a collaborative process. And what that means is, yes, other agencies, yes, the governor's office has a say in what we're doing. Now, in any other circumstance, if the governor's office wasn't involved, we'd be saying, why is the governor's office not involved with this? This is the most important thing going on right now. No wonder nothing's right. This guy's asleep at the wheel. So, of course, they're involved in the process of getting stuff up on the website, figuring out problems. And look, I think that's important. I can tell you this, and going back once again to that experience of me being in that office, you're dealing with a bureaucracy that is not necessarily savvy or attuned to communicating with the public. And they're plotting along their business, thinking they're doing all the right stuff, and they don't see things through a public communications lens. They don't see things through a political lens which I'm not being cynical about that. That is a part of this. And the governor's office brings that lens. So I think it's important that they're involved. I don't think it's something that Dr. Toomey needs to shy away from or act like that's somehow inappropriate. This is not an independent agency like some watchdog group. This is somebody who works for Governor Kemp. This is like being part of his office. Uh, I disagree with Brian. I think Dr. Toomey has been shoulder to shoulder with Brian Kemp since day one of this pandemic. If you cannot answer a simple question that was posed by Sam Whitehead to her, that is a problem. We're depending on these agencies to do their jobs. We're requiring them to answer questions and be as transparent as they possibly can with the data that they have readily available to them. And so, I believe that if Dr. Toomey cannot be the communicator to answer all of the questions to the best of her ability, when people like Sam Whitehead and others ask them, then let's find someone else to do it. But I think at a time where we're coming through a pandemic, I am not blaming the governor's office. I'm not just blaming Dr. Toomey solely, but I do believe that we as Georgians, we need this information, we need this transparency, and we need answers. Dr. Toomey also told Sam Whitehead that we'll be reaching our goal of 1,000 contact tracers by mid-June. We're also, as the governor and Dr. Toomey have said, we're ramping up testing and it's more available now, but we've already opened up. Brian, to come back to our earlier question and especially given what's happening in Hancock County, if we see spikes elsewhere, the governor can't really put the reopening genie back in the bottle, can he? I, I tell you, I, I think it would be highly difficult to kind of go back to a shelter in place because the economy is seeing some green shoots, just getting back on its feet to some degree. Obviously not roaring. I mean, we have 
11% plus unemployment in our state. We've had probably nearly 40 million jobs lost across the country. I keep returning to this one theme. The answer is not the government telling us what to do. It's not asking Brian Kemp to be our nanny. It is us acting responsibly as best we can. I see a mixed result out there, but I am seeing people return to some sense of normalcy in a way that I don't think is quite appropriate yet. You know, I'm seeing uh, people gathering socially in, in ways that are not socially distanced or where social distancing is impossible. At the same time, I've been in a few restaurants, which has been really nice, by the way. I've really enjoyed being back in restaurants. And I am seeing social distancing there other than being table linked away from somebody, which is not six feet. But what is unique to Brian Kemp here is because he was on the forefront of the reopening, or at least that's the narrative nationally, I think it's something that he has to kind of be in the pack on the next time. If we have this massive spike, and it would need to be a massive, deadly spike for us to kind of go back to where we were. But remember, we're not where we were. We have testing now. And we know a lot more than we did two months ago. So hopefully we won't have to go back to that. But I don't see Georgia leading the way on shelter in place if there's a re-spike in cases. Theron, there is political fallout for Governor Kemp, though, in all of this. A new poll by Civics, that C-I-V-I-Q-S for the Daily Cause, found the governor's job approval rating at 41%. His unfavorables were at 48%. Obviously, this could change quickly if the reopening continues to go the way it is without more spikes. The governor says he's not worried about that. Should he be? You know, I've known Governor Kemp for over 20 years. I think that if you know Governor Kemp the way many of us know, is that he has basically, as he liked to say, and it's a UGA term, he's hunkered down. He wants to keep chopping wood. And he's made his decision that he is going to go forward with this no matter what. The problem for the governor is he has given the Democrats just so much red meat to amplify against them. I mean, just the latest with the inconsistencies in the data. You got people that can't report things accurately on a website. And then we have a health director who won't answer questions in a transparent way to the public. I mean, these are just three things. I mean, it's just red meat to everyone who is against him. But it also is, you know, if you're a moderate, sensible Republican and you probably voted for him and you support him reopening the economy, I do think that there's just been sort of missteps along the way. You know, a lot of unforced errors that I think is kind of going into this approval rating that we're seeing with this recent data. But I will say this, if the governor is able to continue doing what he's doing, and he's got some time on his hand. He'll be able to point to some numbers when we can ever get them and hope they're consistent to support his decision. But you're always going to have this skepticism out there because of a lot of the unforced errors and a lot of the inconsistencies in the data. I'm not worried politically for Brian Kemp at this juncture. You know, what you really care about when you are in year two of your governorship is your reelect. I mean, everything is kind of geared toward that. Now, if he is underwater, at this juncture in 2022, he is in really bad shape. I mean, and the Democrats are going to pour money in like you've never seen before, but he has time to write this ship. I mean, look, a lot of this reflects the national media attention on how he's handled the reopening, which in my opinion, hasn't really been fair. It was a bunch of alarmism that was based on the unknown. They were saying what he's doing may be dangerous. It may lead to a spike in sickness and death. We're not seeing that. And so I think eventually when people see the results, they see the facts for themselves with their own eyes, and they're not relying on national media coverage to tell them what they should think about this, that the view on Brian Kemp's leadership here is going to change dramatically. Look, here's somebody who just a few months ago had 60-plus percent approval rating. That is extremely strong for anybody in Georgia, which is so highly split today. It is a 50-50 state. So to have those numbers shows that he's capable of it. You know, one thing that I would be concerned about from their perspective is missing an opportunity because one of the most hard-to-swallow 
stories that we've seen over the last week is that not only are, is he underwater, he's the only governor who is underwater. He's the only one whose fave unfave is worse than President Trump's with the nation at large. You never want to be that outlier, but I do think it could be short-lived. And as I have said consistently, if Brian Kemp is proven to be right, he will look courageous, he will look visionary, and he will be rewarded by voters for that. And that polling had some more interesting things to say. We'll get to that and much more when The Political Breakfast continues. Stay right here. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we're back on The Political Breakfast. Thank you so much for spending time with us. I'm Dennis O'Hare with Republican strategist Brian Robinson and Democratic strategist Theron Johnson. Theron, early voting has already started in Georgia for the June 9th primary elections. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, along with local election officials, are counting on more people than ever voting absentee. More than a million people have requested absentee ballots so far. There have been glitches involving the return envelopes, but overall, are you and voting rights advocates that you may have talked to, are they happy with the way it's going so far, at least in getting the solicitations out? I wouldn't say that everyone is happy because you just pointed out there have been some glitches. I do know that there was an extreme delay of people receiving their ballots after they actually submitted the application. But I do want to commend Fulton County, which is a county in Georgia where Atlanta is in, and has received a lot of criticism over the years for not just late reporting on election night, but just voter irregularities, machine problems. Their election chiefs saw the overwhelming turnout, and they have added, I think, locations, and they have extended hours. This is what leadership looks like. If you see something kind of going wrong, you know, fix it. And so I do want to commend them for doing that. But I do think, Dennis, you will see more people take advantage of absentee. But I'm one who still is going to go out and vote. Lines are not as long as they were at the beginning of the week. Towards the end of the week, they did start to shorten a little bit. But you're going to see sort of another wave of folks next week, I believe, once we feel safer about the process. And then lastly, big shout out to all those voters who actually social distance themselves from each other. That was really good to see on television. Brian, President Trump has now attacked the Democratic Secretary of State in Michigan, Jocelyn Benson, for mailing absentee ballot applications to every voter in the state. And the president falsely said those were the ballots themselves. Secondly, what Secretary Benson was doing in Michigan is exactly the same thing as Georgia's Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger is doing. How does a falsely framed attack like this from the president help Secretary Raffensperger at all when he's trying to get the message out that, hey, we're trying to make things accessible to everybody? That's a tricky one there, Dennis. Uh, let me well, just say I can tell you why Trump attacked Michigan is because he's going out to Governor Whitmer because he thinks that she's kind of leading the case to be VP candidate. I mean, he's been attacking the state of Michigan for the last few weeks. And so that's why he didn't attack Georgia. I, I do think there could be a misunderstanding there that these were absentee ballot requests, not absentee ballots themselves, which is a fundamental difference. It does add a layer of proactivity by the voter. I just want to say that I agree with the approach taken by Ravensburger, regardless of the concerns that I have heard. And I think that the president is echoing these in, in that tweet. I think Republicans are scared of wide-scale voter fraud as a result of everybody voting by absentee. And of course, the national media is always like, there's no evidence of voter fraud. It's like in every story on this. But of course, that's not what they put in stories about Stacey Abrams saying that the election was stolen. Obviously, she thinks there's voter fraud, even though 
I would say in that case, there really is no evidence that it was stolen from her. But she didn't so, allege that people voted when they shouldn't. Her allegation is fundamentally different. We can get into that at another time, but her allegation was about state officials, not about voters voting improperly. And I still maintain that what she has said gets taken at face value and repeated as if it's gospel, and it's never been proven. In fact, there's no evidence to support it. It has hurt our reputation unfairly. It has besmirched our election officials who have done a good job. That's where I stand on that. And look, the absentee voter issue is something that we have to be very careful about. You don't know who is voting. There's no voter ID. You have a lot of issues where people who used to live in an apartment but no longer do are getting ballots from there. They've moved. People who've died are, are going to be getting absentee ballot requests. We've already seen that. So, yes, there is an atmosphere that's ripe for voter fraud. Now, that's not a slam on Ravensburger. I think he is playing the cards that he has dealt. He is trying to have a legal election performed in the middle of, of a pandemic. And so there are going to be compromises made. And I agree with the decisions that he has made on how to move forward with this. Will there be difficulties, though, and Theron, I'll start with you, no matter which party you're voting for, if you show up in person and you're sick, for instance, do the local officials even have any way of knowing that? It's going to be a very difficult time, both for the primary and especially in November, for the local officials and the Secretary of State's office and throw in new voting machines on top of that. Yeah. So let's just walk through it. So number one, we got new voting machines, which have had some challenges. There have definitely been some some glitches, and the Secretary of State has definitely worked tirelessly to address those. That's number one. Number two, one of the reasons why we extended the election in Georgia was because a lot of the poll workers are some of the people who are our most seasoned Georgians. These are people who are uh, in the elderly community. The third thing I want to say is, Dennis, I do want to commend the Secretary of State's office for proactively saying that they're going to count the absentee ballots early. But the other thing I want to say is this, the Republicans missed a key opportunity, and Brian has heard me say this before. Secretary Raffensperger was the first Secretary of State in Georgia's history to give the public the opportunity to view every voter who's been purged. And so this sort of theory where Republicans like to say dead people or People who are voting multiple times are going to, you know, take advantage of, of this absentee ballot process and to commit fraud. It's just ludicrous to me because at the end of the day, if the secretary of state is doing what they're doing, if they're purging voters off the list, which they did a lot, and the former secretary of state, who is now governor, did it for a lot of, you know, ballot reasons, I would say move it up even one more week. You know, I think we're saying now in the beginning of June that we're going to count the ballots. If someone is mailed in the absentee ballot right now, I think the other problem we have is that do we have enough workers at the Secretary of State office to verify the actual ballots? And so no matter what happens, no matter who wins or loses, there are going to be lawsuits. And you're going to see lawsuits from both sides. And back to the polling that we've seen recently, Brian, that civics poll for the Daily Cause showed something that Senator David Perdue has been already saying. It's real close around here. Uh, not only is his race close, according to this poll anyway, against any of the three leading Democratic contenders who might survive their primary, but the free-for-all November race for the other Senate seat, held currently by Kelly Leffler, has Doug Collins in the lead, and then a very close race among Democrats, possibly to get into the runoff, and Kelly Leffler trailing even them. So reading all of these tea leaves together, do you have any sort of general thoughts about what all this says? Well, last week we talked about the poll that a group affiliated with Kemp had put out, and I had said that we really needed to see some more third-party polling before we knew where we really were. Yeah. And you that know, poll, by the way, showed Kelly Leffler much closer to Doug Collins yeah, than this basically it does in a tie, whereas two previous polls before the one last week had shown Doug with a fairly significant lead after the stock issue arose for Kelly Leffler. And I said then, if we see a third or fourth poll 
that backs up these new numbers, then maybe they're legit. If we see a third poll that backs up the original numbers, you got to think that that's where we really are. So, you know, right now we have to assume that Doug has got basically a three to one lead over Kelly in the jungle primary, which of course will also include Democrats. And then it's showing that in a runoff, Kelly is losing to all of the Democrats, whereas Doug is basically running head to head with them. And you basically have a sprint between Memorial Day and Labor Day. She just put down another $4 million buy. So that cuts across this argument that she's about to drop out because she's still pouring money into it. Also just gave a million dollars to a charity this week. So there are signs that they are going to do everything they can. They're going to spend a massive amount of money here over the next three to four months, trying to right the ship and close that gap. But basically, if it's not done by Labor Day, I think you're going to see tectonic shifts in the landscape here as far as how Republicans enter into November. She's got the advantage of having a spending ratio that can be whatever she wants it to be. It could be 10 to 1, it could be 20 to 1. You know, are Doug's support numbers hard numbers? People aren't going to come off of him no matter what messaging is thrown at them. We will know in the coming months. Uh, it could be over today, or she could spend her way back to a tie. That's going to be Leffler's perspective that we can still do this, and Doug's perspective is going to be this is over already. Darren, for Democrats, when they look at polling numbers like this, and they're also thinking about the race for president and the race for Senate in other states, do they run the risk of pouring resources into Georgia because of this poll and end up losing anyway when they might have done better in other states? Yeah, I've talked to a lot of folks in the Biden campaign this week. I've talked to a lot of folks in the DNC. I've talked to some organizations that are looking at Georgia. And let me just get Brian ready. Georgia is a battleground state. It's not only a battleground state for the Biden campaign. We believe, and we believe this for some time, that this is our shot. That based on polls, even before this recent poll, has shown that, one, the candidates on the Republican side are not that impressive. The candidates on the Democratic side are definitely, we got a diverse group of people. No matter who prevails in the race for the Democratic nomination against Senator Perdue, we've seen that those people all are polling well against Senator Perdue. I said last week that Senator Perdue does have a you know big war chest. We haven't really seen him use a lot of his money just yet, but we still got to get through that primary. And so what you're seeing, Dennis, is clear dissension in the Republican Party in Georgia. They are trying to figure out how do they pick the right person in this race for the jungle primary. And I think Senator Perdue has an experienced team around him and they know that they're gonna be up for a fight. And I will tell you this, Georgia is not only just a battleground state, we are now being talked about when you start mentioning Florida. For a long time, it went in this order. It was Florida, North Carolina, then Georgia. What I'm hearing now is Georgia, Florida, or Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, and then I'm also possibly hearing, and I think this is a long shot, but you're starting to look at places like Texas and South Carolina on down the road. And so the polls are already showing what we know, that there's definitely momentum on the Democratic side. If we choose the best candidates, if we have the resources, if we appeal to moderate, disaffected Republicans, I think we can win. Brian, are Republicans confident that they could lure the Democrats into a losing battle in Georgia and that would make it easier for Republicans to win in other states because the Democrats have sent their resources here. Well, that's certainly the case. You know, and that's going to be something that the Democrats have to decide because they've got some opportunities on the Senate side in other states that look even more promising than here. They are looking to knock off the incumbents in Arizona, in Maine, in Colorado, and maybe a few others, North Carolina as well. So they do have multiple opportunities. They do have to prioritize. But I don't think that they're going to do much in Georgia on the Leffler seat in the jungle primary. I think that if they have resources left over, depending on what happens on Election Day, they may spend a lot of money on that runoff if it's a Republican versus a Democrat. I do think that they're going to make a strong effort if the Democrat nominee for the Senate against Purdue turns out to be good, turns out to be running a good campaign and and stays competitive. Like what we're seeing right now is basically like a generic ballot on that race. It's just like, are you Republican or Democrat? What you're seeing Purdue do there, which is interesting to me, is he's still 
extremely loyal to President Trump, tied to the hip with him as he always has been. But if you go see David Perdue in person, the rhetoric is really different. I mean, he talks about bipartisanship. He talks about working together and getting things done again. And that is a break from sort of the burn the bridge down rhetoric that you see nationally uh, in most cases now. You see them making that pivot toward the middle, which is a luxury afforded to them because they don't have a primary opponent. So Democrats' best hope of beating Purdue is on election day. And so you're going to see them make a concerted effort to do that because traditionally Democrats aren't as good about showing up in a runoff in January. Turning to a local contest, Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard now faces a GBI investigation which stems from a complaint from the State Ethics Commission outlining a string of alleged violation of public disclosure laws centering on a nonprofit, which Howard founded in 2004. The question is whether he used that to funnel money to supplement his county salary. He also faces allegations of sexual harassment, and those are being highlighted by his primary opponents on the Democratic side. Theron, the DA has survived a lot of challenges since he took office in 1997. Can he survive this one? I think you just set that up exactly what I was going to say. This is a tested DA. Now, I want to be fully disclosed. I have worked previously for DA Howard on some legislation at the state capitol last year. I have given him a financial contribution. I am not officially working for his office now, and I'm not uh, officially working for his campaign because he has, a, you're right, Dennis, he has an opponent who has some folks working with her who want to definitely try to capitalize on things that they're not said. So I want to I be fully disclosed on that. But be that as it may, I think District Attorney Howard is a prosecutor's prosecutor. At the end of the day, he has put bad people in jail. I think that he's got to really get out on his campaign and talk about his record. And then more importantly, you know, this is something that every incumbent is facing when you have young people who, by the way, his opponent worked for him for a long time, I think almost 16 years in his office. And so she's definitely someone uh, who knows him well and knows his office, but she's well-funded. She's raised a lot of money and she's got a lot of support. So I think at the end of the day, if you're District Attorney Paul Howard, you got to continue to answer these questions. These are some serious allegations that are made against him. But as you mentioned before, uh, Dennis, this is a district attorney who's had a DBI investigation before, and it came out okay. He didn't go to jail. And then lastly, I'll say for our listeners that while these are serious allegations, uh, there has been a mail piece that have gone out that has said that, that they're calling him a criminal and that these are criminal allegations. Well, a lot of the allegations that are made, particularly the civil suit uh, about the sexual harassment, is just that. It's a civil suit. It's not a criminal investigation. And so, you know, again, this is definitely one of the races that people in Fulton County need to pay very close attention to. And I just encourage everyone to take a look at his record, take a look at his opponent's records, and let them vote for who they want to vote for. Brian, the Republicans have a choice here. Uh, As Theron mentioned, the most prominent challenger is a Democrat, Fannie Willis, in the primary. There's also Christian Dior Wise Smith, who's challenging the DA. What do Republicans do here, or do they just sit this one out? Well, what I would tell you, Brian, Brian, there is an effort by your friend, Mary Norwood, who is a two-time unsuccessful mayoral candidate, former city council person, who has endorsed Paul Howard's opponent and is encouraging Republicans to not pull a Republican ballot, Brian. So she's telling you, Brian Robinson, don't pull a Republican ballot. Go pull a Democratic ballot, maybe the first time in your lifetime, and vote for Paul Howard's opponent. I highly doubt that that's going to be a big enough lure for too many Republicans to switch over, particularly if there are any significant races on their side of the ballot. Of course, in North Fulton, there is the 6th Congressional District primary where Karen Handel is the presumed frontrunner by a long shot, but that is something that people would be interested in voting in. And plus, this whole thing about crossover voting is, is more theory than practice. You don't really see it happen in too many cases. It has, and that's created some folklore around that practice, but it's really hard to pull off. These 
allegations against Howard seem to be building. It's not what you want to be having for the two months leading into your primary. His opponent has outraised him. Significant local leaders have endorsed his opponent, which is always a bad sign when you're an incumbent and all the elected officials are are with your the guy trying to take you out. So I haven't seen polling on that, but just from the outside, it looks like Paul Howard is facing some significant headwinds. And look, he obviously wants to go make more money somewhere. So maybe it's not the worst thing ever for him to lose. He thinks he makes too little as DA. And that's it for this week's Political Breakfast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Dennis O'Hare. Brian Robinson is a Republican strategist, communications consultant, and former deputy chief of staff for Governor Nathan Deal. Democratic strategist Theron Johnson is a public affairs and government consultant and former National Southern Regional Director for the Obama 2012 campaign. Guys, thanks so much. All the best to your families. Have a great Memorial Day. Thank you, Dennis. And you can follow us on Twitter. Brian is at Lord Tinsdale. That's T-I-N-S-D-A-L-E. Theron is at Theron Johnson, and I'm at D-E-N-I-S-O-H-A-Y-E-R. And don't forget to catch the newest podcast from WABE, we mentioned it before, on this one. It's up-to-the-minute information on the coronavirus, and it's called Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam Whitehead is your host. And if you like this show, subscribe. You can do that wherever you get your podcasts And be sure to rate us. That's a great way to make sure other people can find us. We will be back in your feed and in your head real soon with more nourishing political conversation. Be sure to join us. Have a great and a safe week. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.